You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week we began a brand new series because we are on a relentless pursuit to find out our true identity. We need a deeper identity. And so um, as we open up this book, we find out that before God tells us to do anything, He wants to remind us who we are. So many problems in my life and your life simply comes from forgetting who you are. How many of you have a loved one who has been diagnosed with amnesia, dementia, or Alzheimer's? Anybody have somebody that you love? I have somebody in my family like that. And it's so tragic to watch a person forget who they are and forget who you are. And um, the most tragic part is there is no cure. And yet, there is a cure for identity amnesia. It is the book of Ephesians. How many of you were in church last week? Good. We started this series. I want to give you a little review, okay? Last week, we talked about how Ephesians is divided into two sections. There's six chapters. The first three chapters are all about the indicatives. The indicatives tell me who I am. It's my identity. It talks about my position in Christ. And God wants me to know that so that when He tells me what to do, I operate from my true identity. My, I, my activity is shaped by my identity. My practice is shaped by my position in Christ. And what I do will be determined by who I think I am. So we talked about indicatives and imperatives. And we talked about the importance of getting the sequence right. The indicatives should always come before the imperatives. And yet before Christ, you don't really care about God's indicatives. You don't care what God says you're supposed to do or what who God says you are. So humanism ignores God's imperatives. I don't care what God tells me. And in, ignores God's indicatives. I don't care who God says I am. But then when I come into relationship with Christ, I really care about the indicatives and the imperatives. The problem is for some of us, we've gotten caught into a religious trap and we've been maybe in some churches that shouted the imperatives but ignored the indicatives. And so they expect you to do right, but they didn't ever tell you who you were. And so that's what religion does. It shouts imperatives. It ignores the indicatives. You know what the gospel does? The gospel shouts indicatives and it ignites the imperatives. Yeah, there's some stuff God wants you to do. There's some stuff that God doesn't want you to do. But before you really are fueled and excited about doing that, you got to know who you are. And so that's what we're starting, this journey through Ephesians chapter 1. And we've got to be fueled by our true identity. So my job is to remind you of your true identity, hoping that once you remember who you are, you'll know what you're supposed to do. It'll change your activity. Now, as we get into this, I want to give you a a warning up here. The the title of the message is The Cure for Identity Amnesia. How many of you got a bulletin? How many of you use the bulletin to take notes? How many of you do that? Is is that worth my time to put that? I've already taken 90% of the notes for you. All you have to do is find the one word, put it in the blank, and you, you got a full set. Now, as I put that outline together, how many points are in the outline in your bulletin? There's three. Sometimes that gives you an indication of how long the sermon's going to be. 
uh, not today, okay? So as I got into this and I saw what God has put in this chapter, um, I realized we are not going to get to point three today, okay? Or point two. <laughs> okay, so we're just going to stay right there on point one. And uh, you say, well, what's wrong? There's nothing wrong. It's just awesome. Okay, let, let me show you what the problem is, all right? I'm now going to read to you the text that I was planning on preaching today, all right? Follow along, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. All right, now, you missed your chance there, okay? If I was doing my job right and you were doing your job right, that should have turned into an explosion of praise. So would you like another run at that? Okay, here you go. To the praise of His glory. All right. So can I get a little sympathy for the reason we're only going to get to point one? Is there, is there some stuff in there? Yeah, we, there's some stuff in there. So, let's just start with this. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's talk about that little term, spiritual blessing. God has every spiritual blessing ready for you this morning. But before we receive it and believe it, we have to acknowledge we're not always that interested in spiritual blessings. What we're about to talk about here is cosmic. It's invisible. It's transcendent. Dare I say, it's mystic getting creepy in church. <laughs> Seriously, how often are you interested in something you can't see, taste, touch, feel, or hear? That's what we're always asking God to bless us with. Stuff we can see, stuff we can eat, stuff we can drive, stuff we can play with. God, would you get some of those blessings down here? We want physical blessings. This is for people who believe spiritual blessings are more valuable than physical blessings. Are you interested in something 
that God wants to give you that you can't buy at Walmart. That's what you need most. And God has it all available to those who are in Christ. And they are just as real as anything that you can touch physically. Do you believe that? This is for people who are interested in invisible things, invisible, transcendent truths. They're spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings are decreed by God. A decree is an order from an authority that makes something true. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter how you feel about yourself. It doesn't matter what you've been called or how you've been abused. When God makes a decree to say you're getting a spiritual blessing, it's a real thing. And it transcends whatever I see, whatever I think, and however I feel. Are you interested in a spiritual blessing this morning? He has blessed us. He's accomplished these things for us, and all three persons of the Trinity were involved. I read that passage so fast, you probably didn't even notice, but that it addressed all three persons of the Trinity. These spiritual blessings were initiated by God the Father, they were accomplished by God the Son, and they are mediated through God the Holy Spirit because they are spiritual blessings. All three persons are involved. So do you want a spiritual blessing this morning? What do I have to do to get it? What do I have to do? Listen, you have to believe it and you have to receive it as a real thing. Do you want it? It is real this morning. And so notice the two directions of the blessing. In verse 3, you probably noticed here, it starts off talking about blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you tell me, which direction is the blessing flowing? Is that a blessing flowing from God to me, or is that a blessing going from me to God? Which direction is it going? Blessed be God the Father. That is a blessing, first of all, that comes from me to God. To bless someone means to bestow favor upon. It means to esteem highly. It means to speak well of. It means to express approval of. And it means provide with benefit. People who have been blessed by God understand there is an unbroken cycle of God blessing me and me blessing Him. So often, especially this time of the year, we might go to a baseball game and we sing the national anthem and sometimes they'll add a second song there and we'll stand and we'll all sing God what bless America and we just oh God we need your blessing it's just so awful down here it's just it's so we just need you to bless us God would you bless us and and God we just need you and the the question remains why should God bless America when America is so disinterested in blessing God, there is an unbroken cycle of realizing how God has blessed me and I return the blessing back to God. Be honest, how much time consciously do you spend blessing God? 
versus how much time you are begging God to bless you. This whole thing starts out not with asking for more of God's spiritual blessing, but understanding in my true identity how much I have already been blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the direction changes. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know who this is written for? It is obviously written to this Ephesian church. Remember, they are living in a culture that is godless, a culture that is looking down on them, a culture that is belittling them. It's this little church in an incubator. It's, it's, it's this little church that's struggling to survive. It, is a, it has minority status. They probably feel very unloved, very unwanted in that community. And God uses Paul to write them a letter and says, You are so blessed. If you're here this morning and you feel unwanted, unloved, and without purpose because you are in such a minority status in this culture, understand your true identity. Don't forget who you are. You need a deeper identity. You need a cure for your, am, your identity amnesia. God says you are so blessed. And there's three spiritual blessings in this text. And the first and the only one we're going to get to is this. Because I am chosen for adoption, I will pursue holy humility. I am chosen for adoption. Do you understand what a rich spiritual blessing that is? I am chosen for adoption. Turn to your neighbor right now. Tell him, tell him, I'm chosen for adoption. Tell him, I'm chosen for adoption. I'm chosen. I'm chosen for adoption. Now, now remember the way this works. Do you know what you just did? You just made the indicative statement, right? Now, if the person that you said that to loves you, they should have already said back to you, then act like it. That's, that's the imperative. That's the way that Ephesians works. That's the way this whole thing works. If you're going to claim the indicative, you need to behave according to the imperative. And so the statement we've put on the screen has the indicative first and the imperative second. I am chosen for adoption. Does that not blow your mind? You are chosen for adoption. Therefore, I will pursue Holy humility, that's what it says in verse 4. Even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, here's the imperative, holy, be holy and blameless before him. Do you see the word chose in verse 4? That is one of the most discussed, debated, and even hated words in the Bible. But can I tell you before we begin to dive into that, the reason that God put that word, see the word chosen, verse 4, underline that word, 
We're going to park on that for a minute. The reason God put that word chose in the Bible was not so you could discuss it, debate it, or hate it. God put that word in the Bible for you to know how much He wants you and loves you. I am chosen. The Greek word behind that English word is a word that I've worked really hard all week to pronounce. At great risk now of embarrassing myself, I am now going to pronounce the Greek word eklegomai. Eklegomai. That's all right. It's all right. No. Now, now you try it. Turn to your neighbor and say, Eklegomai. That word is the Greek word that we get our English word elect or election from. There's a lot of talk about a particular election going on in our culture right now. How many of you are a little worried, anxious, nervous about the election? Okay? Now listen. If you this morning will wrap your mind and your heart around your election, you will be less anxious about the election. You're chosen for adoption. And no matter what happens in the election, you can be secure in your election if you are in Christ. So he says, you are chosen. What does that mean? Even now, some of you theologues are letting your brain work a little too hard to try to figure out what that means and what that does not mean. Let me just give you my definition of the word election from this Greek word, eklegomine. Let's use this definition. It means the self-determining act of God in which he unconditionally chooses some to be saved. Does that make you nervous? Does that cause turmoil in your soul? If it does, you're missing the point. You have been chosen by a self-determining God. Another way to describe God is to, to refer to Him as the great uncaused one. Nothing causes God. And nothing causes God to act other than God. If you properly understand God's identity, you will have no trouble accepting your identity as a chosen child of God. God has self-determined, nothing motivated God. He didn't look at you and think, wow, She's cute. Wow, he'd be a great asset at church. He unconditionally has chosen 
some to be saved. Are you chosen? Rejoice in that, but let the weight of that bear on your soul that it would motivate incredible humility in your soul. The self-determining act of God in which He unconditionally chooses some to be saved. Did I clear that up for you? I mean, theologians have been discussing this for like 2,000 years. So I, that definition cleared all up for you? Aren't you glad we just cleared that up in church? We don't ever have to debate that anymore, what that means, what that doesn't mean, and who's in, who's out, all that. We don't have to... No, no. Well, let's, let's see if we can go a little further here. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Oh, that helps. Great. Not only do we have to deal with the word election, now we get to deal with the word predestination. So let's just throw that up there. We need a definition for that. How about this? The sovereign decree of God in eternity past, in which He guarantees the salvation of all of His elect in eternity future. Think about that. The sovereign decree of God, sovereign means totally, absolutely in control. No other thing or entity can control God or make Him do anything. Whatever God wants to do, He can and will do. Sovereign. Decree. The word decree means an order from a legal authority, like a judge who decrees guilty, innocent. He decrees pardon. So a sovereign decree of God that cannot be trumped because there is no other higher authority that would make any other decree. So whatever God decrees, He makes happen. The sovereign decree of God in eternity past... Understand that? Turn to your neighbors. I do not understand that at all. And, and the reason is because you have a three-pound brain. Okay? Your three-pound gray matter does not have the capacity to comprehend eternity past. And so all we can just say is... Um, God. So the sovereign decree of God in eternity past, the Bible says, before the foundations of the earth. Was that before you were around? Yeah. So it must not have had anything to do with you because you weren't there. And so in eternity past in which he guarantees the salvation. Listen, do you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just make a way for some people to go to heaven? Jesus' death on the cross guarantees that all of the elect will go to heaven. It's a guarantee of the salvation of all of the elect, referring back to the chosen, in eternity future. So what did God decrees in the past last for eternity in the future toward those He has chosen? Predestined us. That should breed incredible confidence in you. Every other religion in the world, every other faith system, is a system that tries to get God to bless them. If I could jump through the right hoops, if I could offer the right sacrifices, maybe we could get Him to send rain, or maybe we could get Him to make our babies 
come faster or more or healthier. Uh, and, and so every other, I remember we were down in Central America in Belize back in March, and we went to these Mayan ruins and, and these incredible temples. And what the tour guide didn't tell us was what was actually happening at the temples where babies were sacrificed in some strange ritual to try to appease the anger of God, to coerce Him to bless them. And God, if we could just be enough and do enough and obey enough and pray enough and fast enough, then somehow we might be able to catch your attention long enough to save us. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you could never do anything enough, be enough, or perform sacrifices enough to get God to give you anything good. What we believe about being chosen, elected, and predestined is God gives us His blessing not because we are good, but because He is good. You read in the first page of your Bible, God created Adam and Eve. The very next words, do you know what it says? And God blessed them. Why? We have a God that is so good. He delights in blessing those He loves. And He's decreed it from eternity past and guaranteed the salvation of all of His elect for eternity future. Now, listen, that is not a rogue marginal doctrine in Scripture. That is not a doctrine to be ignored. As a matter of fact, it's so important. That indicative has such ramifications for our lives, we have it in our doctrinal statement here at Harvest Bible Chapel. If you're a member of Harvest Bible Chapel, you come to Making Harvest My Home, and you say, I want to throw in lock arms with this church. We're going to do this together. There's certain things that we believe together. Here's one of the statements in our doctrinal statement that we affirm. We say this, before creation, God chose those who would be saved and granted His unearned grace solely based on His sovereign good pleasure. Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the sole and complete payment for sins, fully satisfying God's righteous wrath for each person that turns from sin in repentance and places their faith in Christ alone by grace alone. Quite honestly, we've had some people come to our Making Harvest My Home class and kind of choke at that point. Like, wait, 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 God chose, and I'm not sure. I what did I get a choice? And I and I like calm down, calm down, calm down. Read the whole statement. There's a choice required by everyone who is chosen. The choice is I must repent of sin and place my faith in Christ. So the debate rages, which choice comes first? Is it my choice to repent and believe, or is it God's choice to elect? Properly understand in this, understood in this passage, there's no other way to interpret this other than God's choice enables my choice. I am, as an unredeemed, unconverted sinner, as capable of choosing Christ as a corpse is choosing to run a marathon. My sin not only makes me sick, it makes me dead. I get no choices, right? 
I know, I know what you're saying. I know what you're, I've, I know, I know what's going on in your mind. As a matter of fact, I know the questions you're asking right now. I have preempted those questions. Here's the first question you're asking. Well, what about free will? Well, the free will of man. I mean, I've got choices. Now, listen, let me tell you what this doctrine is not teaching. This doctrine is not teaching fatalism. If you go to dinner after church and a waitress hands you a menu, you have a free choice between chicken and steak, okay? God did not predetermine or predestine whether the cow would die or the chicken would die, okay? You get to make that choice and enjoy the meal, okay? But listen, so much of our free will, what we think is free will, so much of it is a, an illusion that we live with in this time and in this space. At best, we have a very limited free will. If you had unlimited free will, do you know what you would be? You would be God. Only God has unlimited free will. Only God is sovereign to choose whatever He wants. And so at best, we have a limited free will. I like to say it this way. You are free to choose which sin you are enslaved to that sends you to hell. That's that's how much freedom you have, right? But only God chooses to the point where he awakens my choice. And so when we talk about the responsibility of man, it never contradicts the sovereignty of God. The, the sovereignty of God never removes the responsibility of man. I am commanded by God, repent! and believe the gospel. And if you do not choose to repent and believe the gospel, you will bear the responsibility for your sin. But the good news of the gospel is this. Not only is repentance and faith a command, it's a gift. God gives you the repentance and gives you the faith to believe because He enables your choice of Him. He has chosen you for adoption. And so we respond with the choice to follow him. Our problem, when we think about free will, we, we, like, we think of a, our, we're like three-year-olds running around in the yard. And a parent says, you just free, you're just free, go, just free. Every time, you know what we do? Like a three-year-old, we run into the street, suicidal maniacs. And we would be smashed and crushed by the oncoming truck if it were not for the good and loving God that runs out of his house after us and snatches us right before we make the suicidal decision to step into the street. And because of God's choice, he limits our freedom. The problem is, is we think of God wrong. We think of God as like that mean old guy on Halloween that locks the door, shuts the light, and has no candy for the children, and the trick-or-treat children come up, and they knock on his door, and mean old God's in there, and he won't open the door, and he won't give them any candy, and, and, and you know, they're out there, they've done the best to impress him with, their, with our costume. That's, that's not the way it is. We are like three-year-olds sprinting in the opposite direction as God warns us, don't step into the street. And yet, Running in the opposite direction, God comes after us and snatches us, overrides our free will, and brings us into the family. I am chosen for adoption. 
and I will pursue holy humility. I know your next question. Your next question is this. But doesn't that make God unfair if he chooses some people and doesn't choose others? Unfair? Do you really want God to be fair? If you got what is fair, what are you getting? You're getting hell. And so it is by God's grace that he chooses some to be saved. I know your next question, you're saying, but, but, but why? why? Why does God choose some and not choose others? The only answer that God has revealed for us in Scripture is simply this phrase, which happens over and over in this paragraph. We've read it, according to the purpose of His will. There are some things that God has chosen not to reveal in His Word. It's a mystery to us. And it's a mystery that remains. But it's not a mystery that should keep you from living as a chosen, adopted child of God. Asking the question, why does God choose some and not others? That's a, that is a, a good question. That's a question you should be asking if you're a thinking person. It's a good question, but it's not the best question. The best question is this. In light of my sinful, wicked refusal of God's will in my life, why does God choose anybody? That's the best question. And that question sends me right back to worship, to understand how blessed I am, chosen for adoption. Really, here's the question I want you to be asking. In light of everything we just said, election, predestination, chosen, adoption, Here's the question you need to ask. How can I be sure that I am chosen? Are you sure beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are adopted, you're in the family? Please understand, everyone who is chosen, chosen makes the choice to believe the gospel. You have a real choice. So, if you have made the choice to repent of sin, place faith in Christ, then you can have every confidence that you are one of God's chosen. But if you have refused to make the choice and seen the life change as a result, then you can have no confidence that you have made the choice. And so, God would say to you this morning, repent and believe God is longing to bless you with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus for all those who choose to believe the gospel. As a matter of fact, he tells us that down in verse 13. The same God that chooses the who chooses the how. So how does God bring the who into adoption? Verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. Step number one, are you listening to the word that God is speaking? You have to hear this good news of the gospel. He goes on and says that. Hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in Him. 
You have to embrace it by faith, believing what he says is true. And if you have done that, you can have full confidence and assurance you're a chosen, elected child of God. And if not, you can be chosen today. Choose him. Repent. Believe the gospel that you've heard. What impact should that have on my life anyway? I mean, is that just some big theological truth? Listen, the fact that I am chosen should absolutely, completely annihilate every ounce of pride in my life. And yet so often, people that embrace this truth and study this truth and preach this truth, they come across so arrogant, like they know something the rest of us don't know. Listen, the fact that God has chosen me has nothing to do with my intellect, my ability to perform. I, I am no more worthy, you are no more worthy of this spiritual blessing than an atheist or an Islamic terrorist or some native in some jungle somewhere that's worshiping a tiki god. You and I, chosen by God, should be completely humbled. There's nothing good in me that attracted God to me. And in spite of who I was in my old identity, God has changed my identity and brought me into his family by his decree. Are you humbled by that? Secondly, the fact that I'm chosen should provoke holy choices by me. That's what it says in verse 4. We were chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. There is a positional aspect of holiness and there is a practical aspect of holiness. If you are chosen, why are you acting so unholy? Why do you let unholy words come out of your mouth? Why do you let unholy thoughts pass through your mind? Why do you do unholy things? And why don't you involve yourself? And why aren't you more attractive to the holiness of God in every practical aspect of your life? You're chosen to be holy. One of the most holy things that, that you could practically choose to do is to live out your adoption and pass that on to somebody else. Do you understand the ramifications of being adopted? And you hear that there are hundreds of children in our community that have no fathers and have no mothers and have no safe place, and yet I have been recipient of the gracious adoption of God to live out a holy life might mean for some of us we open our hearts and open our homes and show somebody what it's like to have an adoptive father and to give them a better identity, a deeper identity. You're no longer an orphan. You're adopted. Your identity's been changed. You can pass that on to somebody else. The fact that I've been chosen should give me an incredible confidence in sharing the gospel. Do you understand? The people that resist this doctrine, the primary reason is because they think it thwarts evangelism. They think, well, if God just chooses, then why does he need me to go share the gospel? He can just choose anybody in my math class. He can choose anybody at Walmart. He can choose anybody in my family, choose anybody at the work. So I guess I don't have to tell him anymore. Wrong. Like we said earlier, the same God that chose the who chose the how. The word of the gospel has to get to those people. And so knowing that, you know what it does? 
it reminds me that the success of the gospel has absolutely no, is not dependent at all on my ability to articulate it. You ever feel like, man, I think God wants me to say something to this person. I think God maybe wants to share my testimony. God, I, I feel like you might want to say, but I don't even know if I'll say it right. And I might quit, misquote a verse. and I might not even accurately represent God. Listen, the success of the gospel is not dependent upon your ability to articulate it. It is completely dependent upon God's sovereign choice. And so it frees me up. You know what that allows me to do? That allows me to sleep at night especially on Saturday night, because i got to come and talk to you and ac accurately articulate the gospel. What if I miss up? What, what if I don't say my right? What if I misspell a PowerPoint, which, have you noticed, that usually happens at some point, you know? I mean, is, God, is, is your believing somehow dependent upon my persuasion skills? There's a lot of people that believe that. If you just say the right thing and share the right emotional story, you can draw people in. That puts an incredible pressure on the pastor or on the evangelist. There are some evangelists, there are some people that are so hungry for somebody to sign a card, walk an aisle, go through the baptistry, pray a prayer, that we water down the gospel and we shave off the rough edges and we don't mention repentance and we don't mention the imperatives and we don't mention lordship. There are some preachers that have so watered down the gospel, not even the non-elect can reject it. Just think about what I just said. Okay? So, if I believe that someone's faith and repentance is not dependent upon me, I can go anywhere, I can say anything, I can go into an algebra class, I can go into Walmart, I can go into my workplace, I can go to my Thanksgiving meal with my crazy uncle, I can go to the jungles of Africa and share the gospel with the hope that God has some elect there that when they hear the gospel, they will choose to respond in faith and repentance because it's not dependent upon me, it's dependent upon God. And so it should give me incredible confidence to share the gospel. The fact that I'm chosen should also cause me to erupt in praise. Listen, if you can yawn your way through a worship service, if you can go your entire week without actively, consciously, continually blessing God for the spiritual blessing that He has chosen to pour into your life, you have identity amnesia, and you need a cure. You need to be reminded you're chosen for adoption. And then this word adoption, we've talked a lot about it. What does that mean? The fact that I'm adopted means that I have a tender loving father who makes me safe too often when we talk about election we talk about predestination we talk in theological terms and it's almost like we think of God as this judge or an attorney and it's all about this legal standing and it's this accurate phrasing and what God does and what God doesn't do listen there's a place for thinking of God as a judge who pronounces pardoned on my life that's important but don't divorce this from understanding that I am chosen for adoption. If chosen has to do with God's position as a judge, adoption has everything to do with God's identity as a father. He wants you to know him. Not in some legal aspect. He wants you to know him and relate to him and love him 
him like daddy. Daddy makes me safe. Daddy takes care of me. Daddy's given me his name. Daddy's given me his identity. I love my daddy. I want to get to know my daddy. I want to spend time with my daddy because he's chosen me for adoption. The fact that I'm adopted means I bear a family resemblance to my father. As I hear his word, I begin to speak words. I begin to speak with his accent and his tone. I even begin to look like him, begin to dress like him, begin to work like him. That's what a son does. It's been adopted by a good father. I bear a family resemblance. It also means because I've been adopted, I should be expected, right? I should expect to be disciplined as a son. Some of you just kind of want to cross over to this one. Um, but listen, orphan behavior is unacceptable when you've been adopted. Orphans have some issues. People that have grown up in fatherless homes, they've never been taught right from wrong. They're really kind of undisciplined. They really do a lot of things to draw attention to themselves because they never feel like I have a true identity. Listen, that's not who you are anymore. You're no longer an orphan. You've been adopted. You have the continual presence of a loving father. You never have to doubt again whether you are wanted, loved, or have a purpose in life. You're adopted into his family. And you can be disciplined when you step out of bounds because God wants to create a new identity and say that's off limits. And so one of the signs in Scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, one of our identities, one of the assurances that we know we are sons and daughters of God is that when we disobey Him, we get spanked. And if you're not experiencing that, you might want to question whether or not you're a legitimate child. Here's the last thing. The fact that I've been adopted means I have spiritual brothers and sisters and some crazy uncles. That's called the church, folks. Look around. Look at all these adopted people. This is a, this is a big adoption agency in here. And, and we've all got some weirdness to us because we've had some dysfunctional family that we came out of. And, and here we are now all in the family together. Are you blessed by that? Does that humble you? Does that motivate you? I've used this illustration before, but I won't do it again. Let's suppose that tonight a crazy man breaks into my house in the middle of the night. He makes his way down the stairs into the basement where my 20-year-old son is asleep. And in a rage, he attacks, brutalizes, and kills my son. I wake up the next morning, I found my son's lifeless body in a pool of blood. And I become enraged. And somehow I was able to track this man down through the DNA evidence and I found out where this man lived. And tomorrow night, I broke into his house. I made my way down the stairs into the basement where his son lives. And I brutally attacked and murdered his son, 
and then I found him, and I brutally attacked and murdered him. Do you know what that would be called? That would be called vengeance. But what if on that morning I find my lifeless son, I pick up my phone, I dial 911, I call the police, they show up, they investigate, they go on a manhunt, they find this man, they arrest him, they put him in jail, he goes to trial, a jury finds him guilty, and he is sentenced to life in prison. Do you know what that's called? That's called justice. But let's say that I go to that man's prison cell. I stick my hand through those bars and through tears. I say to that man, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I have been forgiven of an incredible debt and I want you to know, I forgive you and I love you. Do you know what that's called? That's called mercy. But what if, at my own expense, I hired the best attorneys in the country and I found loopholes and I found a way for this man to be exonerated. I went before the judge. I pleaded for this man to be released. And he was released on good behavior. And now that he's out in the society, he's got nowhere else to turn. What if, at my own expense, I made a way for him to go to college? And he graduated, let's say, with a Bible degree. He's got his Bible degree. And I hired him as an associate pastor here at the church. Now, this is not true. None of our associate pastors have done these things. But what if? What if I did that? Do you know what that would be called? That would be called grace. But what if? Beyond that, I invited that man into my home for dinner one night. And I pulled out the chair and I seated him at the family table. I let him sit in the place where my son used to sit. I let him eat at the table where my son used to eat. What if I asked that man to make his permanent residence my home? I gave him the room where my son used to live and I let him sleep in the bed where my son used to sleep and I opened up my son's closet and I said, everything here that my son once wore, you can now wear. Everything my son once had is now accessible to you. And I want you to know, I've gone to the courthouse, I filed the paperwork, the judge has made the decree, your name has now been changed. You're a Griffith. You are my legally adopted son. I am your father. I am available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Anything I have belongs to you. What is that called? That's adoption. You and you and you and you. You have not just received mercy. You have not just received grace. You have been chosen for adoption. Your daddy loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And he wants you to live out his legacy with his identity in the world. Don't forget who you are. You are an adopted 
child of God. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and let me just ask you that question. Are you? Are you? Do you have absolute certainty, 100% confidence that if you died right now, you would be forever with the Father because He's changed your name? You have a new identity in Christ. You see the family resemblance. You're pursuing holy humility. All of those are evidences of a chosen, adopted child of God. How about you, Christian? Are you dabbling with unholy things? Have you been a Christian so long, somehow you don't think today you need more grace? Have you become proud, thinking your way's better? If people would just listen to you, God's so lucky to have someone like you in his family. If you know you're chosen for adoption before the foundation of the world, it should bring complete humility. Why don't you just tell the Lord, God, thank you for being so good, so kind, so gracious, so merciful, so forgiving. I want to live this week with a deeper identity. I'm chosen for adoption. I, this week, will pursue a holy humility in gratitude to who you are and who you've said I am. If this morning you can't say with certainty that you're a child of God, you can before you leave this day. Our pastors are here at the front. We're going to dismiss in a few minutes, but before you head out, why don't you just come down here and let one of our pastors pray with you, talk with you. You can leave here today knowing I'm adopted. I have a new identity. No matter what you've done, no matter how unwanted, no matter how unloved you may have been, you don't have to live like an orphan. Father, thank you that for reasons that only you know you've chosen us in Christ thank you that you've paid the penalty you put us in the path of the gospel we've heard your word we've been exposed to the truth of the cross and you deposited faith and repentance in our heart and so in a fresh new way today we choose to believe and receive that as a spiritual blessing make it real to us that would affect what we do on Thursday afternoon and Saturday night, every moment of our day. We bless you. And we thank you for the blessings we have in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.